All right, Clay, let's get into Amalgamation and Capital, which is uh, brought to uh, the fore with the Tom Nuttall quote from this episode. I think it sums up our podcast here, which is, knowledge is overrated, William. Diligence (laughs) is what's required in the service of a willing spirit. So we'll see how well we can do with our lack of knowledge to talk about Deadwood. How are you? Good. Do you remember... um I don't know if you were much of a comic book person in the '90s. <clears throat> Did you ever have you ever heard of the Amalgam Universe? No, I don't that think was, so. That was where I had first heard that word. It was when, uh, for I don't know how many months, uh, Marvel and DC crossed over and put out books under a new publishing name called the Amalgam. Mm-hmm. That was uh, <clears throat> crosses between fan-favorite Marvel characters and fan-favorite DC characters, including Dark Claw, which was a cross between Batman and Wolverine, which oh, on so the surface the, yeah, doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense, but <laughs> was was pretty cool. <laughs> but it's that kind of thing. So it was like, you know, Superboy and Spider-Man crossed over to be Spider-Boy. Spider-Boy, sure. That kind of thing. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was, I remember it being very fun. I don't know if the books are any good. Probably not, but... Uh, I'm glad... I'm, well, I'm 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 mostly interested that they actually lived up to the definition of what an amalgamation is. Do you, do you know yes. the definition of amalgamation? I'm assuming it's when you take two things and put them together and make a new third thing. Yeah, it's it's a it's basically a merger where neither of the prior things exists anymore when it's yeah. when it's created. So instead of like a a corporate merger where Microsoft buys Activision or something and it just folds mm-hmm. into Microsoft, it would be a brand new company that is neither Activision nor Microsoft at the end of it. Gotcha. That's your history lesson for the day. Apparently, it's fallen out of use, although the, the webpage I was looking it up says, it's sort of interestingly, it's still used uh, prominently in India, which I thought was just kind of a strange. Oh, all right. I don't know. I, I don't know if they translated into some some other word, but it just seems strange that amalgamation would stick, but who knows. Anyway, this is Amalgamation and Capital, our latest episode of Deadwood. We're going to break it down right after this. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is Amalgamation and Capital. The episode is number nine of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Ed Bianchi, written by Elizabeth Sarnoff. In this one, called Amalgamation and Capital Bullock and his stepson, William, share a moment of conversation. Al tells Farnham to befriend the telegraph operator, Blazanov, and monitor any wires coming in from Yankton. Ellsworth and Alma discuss the impending arrival of a safe filled with currency. Hostetler and the nigger general Fields have come into possession of a wild horse, which they intend to nut. Martha and William arrive at the hardware store with lunch for the men. Al double-crosses Miss Isernhausen and buys her off for $5,000 and a promise of safe conduct. Hostetler and the nigger general are unable to contain their horse, which runs through the streets of Deadwood, missing Tom Nuttall aboard his bone shaker, but smashing into Steve, who is talking to William Bullock. Steve pulls himself up on a broken leg. William, unconscious, lay splayed out on the streets. So that's it. That's the description of this one. Um, so my my first sort of takeaway from this one is I, um, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as the last episode, which was Childish mm-hmm. Things. Um, although looking over the notes and sort of remembering what happens in the one after this, this is, this is kind of a situation that it's very much like, um, uh, 
the, the why do I always forget the name of the, a lie agreed upon the two parter at the first part of the season. Mm-hmm. So the next episode is almost a second part direct continuation of this episode. Both both of the two parters take place in the same day, and the one after this one takes place in the same second half of the day that this takes place in. So gotcha. it's got a little bit of a two-parter feel to it if it feels a little bit sort of unsettled at the end. But um, I don't know how you felt about it. I was a little bit uh, – I wasn't as um, enchanted with this one as I was previously. I just thought that the dialogue um, – stuff like the Walcott and Moe's Manual in the last episode felt a little bit more interesting. And I, I guess the bigger point is really that – the stuff that happened in the episode prior to this felt more like the rising action. And this was a resolution of a lot of things. And well, it's maybe you could argue this is more like the middle act of something. It it didn't feel like there was as much energy in this one as the previous episodes, but I thought it was still good. It's just, it was a different kind of feeling while watching it. An accident befell my brother is the sum of what I know and be glad I choose to say it. Gut shot. Nuttall's number 10 by his own hand. Correct. The day you sell out the claim you two were partnered on. Correct. And fuck yourself. And don't act entitled to answers. Why was Charlie handling the gun? Fuck yourself. And don't act entitled. Why weren't you two watching Nuttall's bike ride? Fuck yourself. Want to see his gun and his remains? Where's Charlie buried? My brother is buried in a secret burial place by his own private instructions. Jesus Christ, Bullock. Put together a quarter don't. Quiet, you. Don't hush me in my own fucking joint. And if we take it outside, old man, expect a different outcome from the other fucking day. You best have five of your fucking cappers then with uh, rifles at the ready. I got five and five behind them, indoors or out. I, too, must report to the sheriff a death. The Cornishman at theft has been shot in Mr. Hurst's claim. Killed? Yes, in flight. It's all fucking amalgamation and capital, ain't it, Walcott? Mr. Utter, are you a student of Hume? Smith? A disciple of Karl Marx? Come on, Charlie. My employer, Mr. Hurst, has interests and connections in Montana, Sheriff, as are imputed to you in this morning's Pioneer. Hey, shut your fucking mouth! I'm out of here! Yeah, Charlie! Show got to you, didn't he, Mose? Now he's got to get you to die! Come on, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, it's tough coming off the last couple to uh, to keep that, that energy level up. Um, I mean, this one... <laughs> the, prominent, the prominent action for the first two-thirds of this is... One guy reading the paper and then three people having lunch. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit more low key than the, well, it's multiple guys reading the paper. Dan reads the paper too because he uh, he requests that the ball scores be more fucking prompt. Yeah. <laughs> How out of date do you think the, the ball scores are for this? Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I didn't even realize they were keeping ball scores at that point in history. Yeah. It can't be the majors, right? Can it? I don't know if the majors existed then. Uh, I'll look that up. When did Major League baseball start i would have guessed 1890s for major league base oh no 1876 wow oh okay there you go just really uh got on it after the oh, civil war no, there, hold huh? on a second the first ml game was 1846 wow the new york nine annihilated the knickerbockers 23 to 1 in four innings 
<laughs> 23 to one. Oh, because that's when it was like slow pitch softball. Yeah, right? it must have been in four innings. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they, I guess they had a mercy yeah. rule or something like that. But I, I mean, I guess this this depends on when you consider the major leagues to be starting. I don't know. Although this one, well, says, it's it been 154 just... years of Major League Baseball. Well, so they've been at least recording scores long enough that this is yeah accurate. Yeah, okay. I, I'll go. More is pointing towards 1876 as the start of this in terms of the dates and the MLB website stuff, which is a, apparently a game in Cincinnati that was played. But I guess Dan is right on the forefront to this new league that he's very interested in following. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I, it's it is definitely more low key. Um, I, I did like a lot of the individual scenes. Uh, I really liked Trixie talking to Ellsworth. I thought it was a great scene. Um, Fucking Ellsworth. <laughs> Fucking Trixie. Uh, Charlie losing his shit and having to be taken outside. That was a good scene. Yeah. Um, I love everybody being tense around Martha, Martha and Alma, not knowing what the hell's going to happen. <laughs> um, my, my favorite moment is during the Alma and Martha scene where they, they come in and the camera keeps like cutting back and forth between everyone as they're waiting for like their, there's such tension about how these two are going to interact with each other, Martha and Alma. And then after they, um, after they sort of shake hands, Trixie goes, would you like a bite of meat? Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Garrett, and it just cuts to a horrified Sabbath standing there, and she says, "No, thank you." And it was some some clever editing and uh, and uh, camera work there, I think. But yeah, that's well, the, uh, that's a funny scene. The uh, the editing and the camera work is kind of the star of this episode, I think, because they're, it's really doing a lot of heavy lifting, um, especially towards the end. Because uh, I um, one thing that I've learned from this show, but honestly, this goes for any show. If you're if you're pulling in towards the end of the episode, and uh, there's sort of a uh, a repetitive beat underneath yep. what's happening, a little bit of a, an they, eerie motif being played, yeah, underneath. and they start start cross cutting to multiple groups of people, and there's a child involved. That child is not getting out unscathed. <laughs> I was wondering how early you might pick up on the William uh, thing. That some, that, do, so here's our, our, our latest trivia game. Do you remember this episode from your first watch? Um, do you remember I William? Don't, I mean, I'm, I, I didn't really remember his family at all, regardless of how far in I had watched it. Okay. Um, but... I this is the most memorable thing that's happened to him obviously like yeah, yeah I I don't think I saw this episode okay I think we are now into um uncharted waters for me because I, I I was trying to I I didn't remember him getting run over um and I didn't remember any of the other stuff that really happened in the episode and I feel like it's there's enough in it that like that final sequence is is memorable enough that I feel like it would have stuck with me and I I didn't remember that at all I just uh yeah. As soon as I, as soon as I saw that kid having a really good time, I was like, "Oh, he's going to get Barry Lyndon." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would have imagined if you had seen this that the first time you run into William, you would have brought up the fact that he gets run over by a horse. You know, it's just it's yeah, it's just something I, that's like it's important to the character in a way that he he hasn't really done anything else, and also this is. One of those episodes that falls into your Walking Dead analogy of like when mm-hmm. you start focusing on a character, they're, they're, uh, something bad is going to happen to that character. Yeah. I don't know if you I felt that way. I actually didn't because I think there's enough other stuff going on that um, they kind of 
obfuscated a bit until they really start dialing in towards the end. Like it's not just following him for an entire episode, which is usually right. how that goes. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I uh, I wasn't sure. I uh, it was it became clear that something was going to happen, but I didn't know what it was going to be because uh, I think they do a pretty good job of kind of um what's the word i'm looking for uh dece- deceiving you a bit because it, it seems it seems like he's gonna get like molested or something it does by, with, with steve like by following steve. Him around. Yeah, yeah like it had yeah. a it had a big like he's gonna abscond with this child energy to it yeah um but yeah, of course once they start once they started showing them trying to hold on to the horse and the uh all the cross cutting and stuff I'm like all right i know what's gonna happen he's he's probably gonna get run over yeah yeah it's the um it's i i guess the episode kind of builds towards that it, it's a a slow burn of an episode that feels like it's not really not much is help happening but it feels like there's a lot brewing in the like in the uh the 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 uh the background of it um mm-hmm. It, it's you know the the title again represents everything that's kind of going on into it, which is it's this amalgamation capital idea, which is uh, sort of literalized through Walcott, which is what uh, Charlie Charlie says the phrase like three times in about three minutes, and so you know yes. that, that's that's going to be the point of it. It's literalized in Walcott and Hearst, and that uh, Charlie is just kind of using. Uh, kind of a funny Charlie scene is that he's just he's just using words that he's heard before to describe what he thinks is happening, uh, yeah. <laughs> because he just says he doesn't know what it means. But a a reporter had asked Wild Bill what he thought about the whole future of amalgamation and capital, um, and he accuses Walcott of doing that. And on the more like figurative side, uh, the amalgamation is basically it's an episode that's around uh, the different groups of people sort of coming together as new units and reconciling with each other. So mm-hmm. like it, the Bullock family has after the, the fight that Martha and Seth had last week, which was where uh, she repudiated him and told them that she didn't want any part of him in her life. Like she, she accepts her a lot in life, but is not going to accept a relationship with him. The Bullock family is now in this episode shown to be starting to be developing something else that's coming along like a, a true, uh, family unit um, has that nice scene with William. He plants the three remaining sunflower seeds that he's kept uh, since he th- since they moved from their last place mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. I can so, tell you, those sun three sunflower seeds more than enough. Those things, if they weren't so pretty to look at, they would be considered weeds. They grow like weeds. They're crazy. They're, they're, they're just too. They're, you mean the sunflower itself is just impossible to stop? Uh, yeah, from it's crazy. My 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 dad at our old house had a, a bird feeder yep. out in the backyard. Yeah, and after the first couple months, we started getting sunflowers growing up next to it because <laughs> it mixed into the seed was <laughs> right, sunflower, sunflower seeds, and it just them hitting the ground. These massive like seven eight foot sunflowers grew up just behind the the, the thing it was crazy <laughs> what do you, do you do you like sunflowers yes or no yeah they're nice yeah i think they're um kind of a weird plant they're they're very very pretty to look at but they're, they're kind of a pain in the ass to deal with because when they die yeah they're just, fucking huge it's like a, it's a tree a, it's just a mess <laughs> yeah it's just like a tree falling into your uh to your that's something as a homeowner i've become more aware of is they're like Certain trees and bushes and plants are just a mess after a while. Yeah. Like, you, and you have to take care of them. And 
I don't know. We have these like Norwegian maples that are apparently invasive, but they put down a a hundred bajillion of those helicopter seeds every spring. Oh, sure. They they just cover everything and they're so annoying. Anyway, um, yeah, but William plants his sunflower seeds in this one representing the family growing. There's the, uh, the coming together of Martha and Alma in this one, which represents more of the, like the, uh, the capital aspect is brought into that too because Alma now has capital that she's brought into the town through her safe and her bank and they're starting to take deposits as a way to backstop Hearst to at least provide a little bit of um, financing in order to take on one of the richest men in the country who's coming towards them. Uh, so it thematically lines up with all that stuff. It's kind of like a repositioning of the characters into their new units and dealing with the money aspect on the side of it to sum everything up. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit losing the, I I think I had got most of it, but what is it that Al is so mad about? Because it seemed like the thing that he was reading in the paper was more or less what he told Bullock to do. Uh, Merrick, you mean? Uh, well, he, it mentioned Bullock and linking him to Montana. Oh, yes. So Al's upset that Merrick is not being precise enough with his uh, journalism to lead people into the right direction of what's best for the camp, basically. So he's saying that Merrick wrote basically too broadly about what could happen. And he wants the instrument, he wants the newspaper to be. Uh, he has that line where he's talking to Merrick about it. Like he wants the the newspaper to be an instrument that he can use against Hearst in the way that Hearst would use it against him when he comes to town. So mm. it's he's really th- there's nothing specific that he's upset about. It's more just the fact that Merrick is trying to be like the good journalist man still, and he's not working with Al and the rest of the town to sort of protect them from Hearst's interests. That was the other scene I liked was the the. Alan and Merrick scene where where they're drinking and Merrick starts to like turn he like starts swearing and stuff he gets like drunk. everybody else yeah. does yeah <laughs> I like my liquor he's like smell my fingers Al he just says no <laughs> every rumor you floated in your article Merrick I believe is a living possibility for this cabin I want you to fucking hear that as a compliment if so it's the first from your lips because all them possibilities called next to accomplished fact in one fucking outgush makes people smell a rat yes i suppose so these interests coming after us merrick they're fucking rough they're going after our nuts they're hypocrite cocksuckers and the fucking lying tactics and instruments they use to fuck people up the ass can be turned against them my newspaper being such an instrument. But scale, amount, proportion, seasoning. Bring that fucking second shot, Merrick. I like my fucking liquor. A trade in you that gave me early hope. I like stinking of fucking ink, too. Give it a fucking smell, Al. No. He likes the, I uh, like the being covered ink. in fucking ink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> smell it, Al. Yep. Yeah, Merrick starts getting uh, a little bit loopy with him. But that that's that. My... The the main thing I, I think of from Al in this one is that this is the um to me, I don't know if you feel different, this is the start of when the Miss Isrenhausen storyline starts to become far too complicated for what yeah. I what I'm trying to understand. I've yeah. I was I was following it until this point, but I, I think it's now in like its fourth or fifth double cross and I yes. don't understand <laughs> who what they're talking about anymore. Well, the thing I was trying to figure out about this is like she's really bad at 
her job because Al brings her in and he's like, I intercepted that telegram, the response to your telegram. And it basically says that if you go back or whatever, you're going to be murdered, blah, 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 unless you take this money I'm offering you and whatever he's saying. Yep. And she's just like, okay, I'll take the money. It's like, you don't even want to ask to read the telegram? Well, that, that's you're just going to take Al at his word? That's the thing. He also has the letter from Mrs. Garrett that she does not read, so she takes him at his word about what the letter from Mrs. Garrett yeah. says. Yeah, why would she ever do that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I, but it also leaves me in the position of, I'm not even sure what Alma's letter says, right? Like, I, I, yeah. I don't know if Al is telling, like, I'm very confused about why Alma wrote the letter in the first place. Uh, I mean, because yeah, I don't, sure. I don't know how that's linking to her helping Al, or if she's predicted this, or if she even wrote him a letter about Miss Isrenhausen is confusing to me. So it's, it seems like it's a game of one-upsmanship, but it's sort of, um, it's like untethered from me being able to understand really what's going on. Besides the fact that Al is trying, in broad strokes, to do what's best for him in the town, and he's trying to set up a situation where Miss Isrenhausen does not get what she wants out of it and it's working the other way for her obviously yeah it's getting complicated because he's he he is he seems to be playing his middleman role his angle is he's not lying to anybody yep and uh he's using that as leverage so he's like he's telling her about the letter but but it's getting it is getting confusing because at first it's she goes to him and then he goes to alma and then he takes what alma tells him back to her and then now there's this telegram thing and now he's given her money and i'm i'm just not really following what and exactly he, is going on he made up the telegraph response from the pinkertons right like he's when he says, I'm going to read it to you verbatim, and he does not read it, he's giving her a suggestion about what the plan is, right? That's my understanding of what's going on. He's telling her, imagine your Pinkerton bosses said this. This is how we're going to handle it and how you're going to walk away from this whole situation is you take the oh, money. Oh, is that what he's doing? I, that's my, that's my take that, on it. I mean, that's the only reason why she wouldn't ask to read it. Right, right? because she, she understands that he, that's what he's doing to her. Maybe that makes sense. I think that's... Yeah. Just because I thought it was funny that he says, I'm going to read a verbatim, and he does not read it to her at all. And so I, I, that's what led me to think that. I, I wish I wish they would have Psy in a scene like this, just so all of this stuff can go on, then he can go, you know, I really don't know what's going on here. <laughs> ain't, ain't no picnic running pussy or or blackmail is it it's just like yep that's that's correct si. you all talk a sweet pretty game but i gotta tell you i've got no fucking clue what you're talking about <laughs> who's the wasn't there a character i guess it's um well it's dan's underlings usually so you need johnny burns in there to sort of ask what the hell's yeah. going on but he, he does, he's not around <laughs> he has to go get the uh, seth bullock so that's the that's the isernhausen thing and i mean that like i I understand it in the sense that it also ties into Al trying to exert control over Blaznov too. Like it's mm -hmm. just whoever controls the telegram or the telegraph is a uh, key player in town and stuff and like he's, that. So Al is trying to turn her basically, right? Yes. He's trying to... Against the Pinkertons? Yeah. Turn... Yes, he's... Yeah, because he's having a conversation about who is going to change their alliance first. And he says, it's going to be hard to, for you to change my, my alliance to this town and myself. 
it'll be much easier if you change yours to the Pinkertons. So I think he's trying to win her over to his side for reasons that, I mean, I mean, I guess it has to just come down to Al's trying to control even more information and having her be someone who's a connection to the Pinkertons is an information line on what's happening in that front, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. But the the nuts and bolts, of, I could not describe to you what is actually happening in this plot line anymore, unfortunately. Although it's, it's one of those, I wouldn't, it's funny because the show, I normally don't really care. Like there have been plot lines that have not gone anywhere, have been sort of um, underbaked. And I haven't thought that it's been too, Im- like uh, I've enjoyed the dialogue and the character interactions enough where I've been able to ignore that. And I don't really think that the plot is all that important on this show. But for mm. some reason, the Isren hasn't plot sticks out to me because it feels like it's trying desperately to lay plot in a way that the the other scenes w- w- that were similar to this didn't feel that way. It just felt like it was more of an excuse to have characters come together and have a conversation about something. Like the plot was yeah. just the reason it brought them together. But this whole scene and these scenes with these two all seem to be revolving around this sort of like murder mystery plot that's going on and I, I can't track it. So I think it suffers from it. Yeah, I think the Isrenhausen plot is a good example of what does and doesn't work, or I should say why things do and don't work on this show, because her whole thing is essentially talking about stuff that has happened elsewhere, Yeah, and or is, is happening elsewhere, and I think when you're doing that and you're not really giving a lot of um, Deadwood-based action to to uh couch it then it it's it kind of like lose it you lose interest pretty quick because it's it's you don't really have a grounding anything grounding you to the people or the or the places around and then you just kind of like all right al's mad about something but i'm not even sure who the pinkertons are at this point you know yeah you get kind of um you get lost in the language and you don't have these the, the like the visual aspect of understanding what they're even talking about anymore yeah. it's it's just the deadwood language turned up to 11 with no sense of what this actually means for anybody yeah whereas you've got other plot lines where they talk in as dense as as dense dialogue as anything else that you are fully engaged by because there's actions linked to it or you know even i mean the stuff that was going on with uh what's his name the wiggly eyeball guy oh mo's manual most yeah like you know they're just jawing at each other talking about you know money and all this kind of but it's but it's interesting because there's there's actions baked into it and stuff you know yeah so i think i think that's where the show kind of can can skew off the rails a bit is when you don't have a localized action to uh to to hang your dense dialogue on yeah no that, that makes sense and um i honestly don't remember where the isrenhausen story goes after this um i imagine there's a few more double crosses and scenes between these two but i don't specifically Cause, remember because also she hasn't really done anything right like i think that's that's part of the problem is that she's made a lot of threats yeah she doesn't but she have much power behind yeah them. she hasn't she hasn't like tried to fuck with somebody directly i mean just just alma but not really you know she hasn't really done a ton and so it's difficult to kind of really track what what she's actually there for yeah she she's she acts like walcott in a way that she 
you know, when when she needs to, she tells people to fuck off and she has a sort of like power behind her that she she speaks like Walcott in the sense that it feels like there's a powerful backing to her. But for some reason, the Pinkertons don't seem to match up with the way that Hearst matches up, which is that like everyone in town reacts to Hearst's name as if like they immediately know what that represents for Walcott. There's no sure. confusion about it. The Isernhausen thing, she acts like she has this tremendous backing, but it's hard for me to just see like why Al doesn't just kill her, sort of. You know, like right, the, there's yeah. no... The Pickertons don't have this um, level of like like thematic or symbolic weight behind them yeah. in the way that her especially does. especially because like her big her big chip is is getting Alma to sign this thing or whatever it's like who the fuck cares like why i mean Al knows that she's that Alma's not going to that Alma's going to play ball with him right so what why even bother with this lady and her shenanigans yeah yeah it's a good point well we can move on to um one of the other stories then so what would you think i of- would Oh, God. Uh, I was just going to say, I want to talk about the thing that, that most uh, jarred me in this episode. Uh-huh. Arguably the most jarring thing I've seen on the show thus far. Sure. Which is uh, William Bullock taking a third of a cup of coffee with three to five <laughs> spoonfuls of sugar in it. Good morning, William. Good morning, Mr. Bullock. Are you sometimes permitted coffee? Yes, sir. About a third of a cup. Completed with cow's milk. As to sugar, three spoons. This is the morning, William, do you suppose? The tip of this lamp, like an Indian spear, goes into the top of my head. (laughs) I don't know, sir. And uh, filled it up with milk, cow's milk, the rest of the way. Yeah, it's... That's, I mean, well, when you put it that way, it's probably pretty good. It's probably like a latte. But, <laughs> but it, when you say it's a, thir- a third of a cup of, it's not even espresso. It's just like drip, co- like percolated coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's now turned into like a, a, a brown sludge because of all the sugar. All the sugar. <laughs> he likes it. He likes it sweet. I like Bullock's line. Bullock's line says that he'll like stiffen it with another spoonful of sugar or something like that. Yeah, he likes his, uh, he likes his coffee. His coffee sweets, although it's um, it gives me an in to one of the uh, one of my greatest coffee stories, which is that I was uh, I was when we were living in Boston, I was going over to Amy's and I stopped to get a cup of coffee in the morning, and it was a Dunkin's, and it was a morning Dunkin's line, and I'm standing there, and I'm in right behind this group of like hard-nosed construction worker types. Like, they all have their, like, hard hats and reflector vests and tools mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and they're, they're jawing with each other. And we're waiting in line, and they, they're just talking very loudly to each other, right? Like, they're, they're the conversation that, like, everyone is pretending not to listen to, but it's all you're listening to. Yeah. And they're just talking they're about... They're around jackhammers all day. They're, they're, they're it's, it's hearing hard, a shot. It's hard to hear. And they're just talking about how they went out last night. They got so fucking shit-faced. They're, just, they're cursing loudly. One of the, uh, they're like, one of them hooked up with a, a, a very lucky long, young lady. <laughs> and they're just talking about like, they're like, they're like, you fucked that broad. And it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, that's fucking nice. It's like, you know, this is real Boston shit. Just talking about fucking broads. And then the, the woman at the Duncan's counter is like, next. And like the biggest guy of this group has been talking the loudest. He goes up and he's like, yeah, I'll have a, uh, 
uh, iced French vanilla with six Splenda. <laughs> I was like, I was was not expecting this guy to order that drink at this Mm -hmm. moment in time. It Mm -hmm. was, but maybe he's a William Bullock uh, when he's all grown up and stuff. And he just, he likes the sugar. Yeah. Even if he grows up hard. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't judge because my, my inroad to coffee was the, um, the Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee with extra sugar in it, like enough so that you could see it at the bottom of the, oh, yeah. of the cup. It can't dissolve. Which I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's at that, yeah, chemistry, they, that chemistry phrase for where it can't absorb anymore. The Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee is like 90% milk. So it's, it's basically this drink that he's ordering. So I should, I shouldn't be so uh, judgy. They put a lot of, they put a lot of cream. At least they didn't say culotta, which is a more bizarre uh, thing than even the iced coffee because it has, it has something <laughs> going on in there that makes it extremely chemically and strange, but yeah no it's uh people like their coffee in all kinds of different ways and usually in coffee. ways that take a lot longer for them to make the order than i think it should yeah coffee back then must have been terrible right like there's no chance it was good no it might, that i mean that that must be I'm, I'm sure seth bullock is probably jealous that he can't put that much milk and sugar into his coffee because <laughs> someone will come and call him a cunt <laughs> so maybe that's what it is but i can't imagine it was good because you that, know that would be <laughs> you know that, that he would he would make that drink he would step out onto his porch take like a sip and just like be so contented with it and then jane <laughs> you just hear jane be like you want some hair on that pussy you fucking asshole <laughs> he just he's just like skipping down the thoroughfare drinking that sweet nectar of the gods yeah well william bullock will have to order his coffee for it but his father used to make his coffee. That gives him the uh, the bonding session about meeting. We're talking about uh, Seth Bullock's brother, who is William's father, which provides an inlet for the whole family to start bonding again. Um, <laughs> he plants his sunflowers. What the hell is? Oh, we could talk about. Um, there's not a tremendous amount of storyline in this one. I don't think. I mean, there's the dinner. There's the lunch scene with Alma and Martha, and there's also. Just what's going on with Moe's at the Bella Union with Cy Tolliver. Mm-hmm. Um, the Moe's thing, um, the Moe's story, Moe's has returned, obviously, in this one. He is now been, he's gotten all of his money, and Cy Tolliver is trying to get him to play games of chance to give it back to Cy Tolliver, basically, or to, to mm-hmm. spend it all at the Bella Union. Uh, Walcott is. I don't know. Walcott to me is interestingly frustrated in this episode. Um, I don't particularly know why he's, he's, he comes across more as he, he, my favorite Walcott, my favorite scene in the episode is probably Walcott uh, confronting Moe's when Moe says that he wants it all back. And Walcott has the, the monologue about like, how far back should we go with this? Like, should we give you youth back? Should we give you uh, your brother's life back? Should we take away the envy that you had for your brother? Um, Walcott is basically more obviously playing his Satan line where he seems to know things about Manuel that he shouldn't know personally about him. Mm. Um, So I think that that's interesting and I like that dialogue. But other than that, Walcott kind of comes out of nowhere to me in this episode where he he stands up to Tolliver as well in a way that I don't feel he's been doing recently, which was Tolliver says, like, I could have handled that. And Walcott has a line about, like, I'll have Lee burn this place down and murder you. Before that happens, um, mm-hmm. he he serves in my my ready. So I don't know. I don't know if you thought anything about those two. I, I like the scenes. And I like Mo's manual, and I think that his fall from grace is a pretty interesting storyline. But it it seemed 
somewhat out of place with some of the other characters, Walcott included. That's a generous use of the word grace, I think. But yeah, well, his his uh, maybe not a fall from grace, a fall from I don't know what it would be like. Well, it kind of because he 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 clearly feels bad about what he did, right? Right. So yeah, there is yeah. a regret there because he ended the last episode saying. Like, is anyone going to catch me? And what have I done to my own brother? And then this one, he wants it all back. And I take him to mean what the Walcott interprets him to mean, which is that he he regrets everything that he's done to this point to get to that yeah. to the Tolliver thing. But what do you think? Yeah, I I like the way that they've they've played him <clears throat> because he's clearly his actions are clearly uh, nervous and guilty energy, just blowing through that money. Because you know, if he could very easily just take the money and leave or whatever, but he's right. going out of his way to to fuck fuck himself up, you know. Yeah. And uh, I I I think it, I I liked the the scene where where he gets killed because Walcott I think sees what's going on, and he just doesn't want to. Uh, he just wants to cut to the chase, basically. Yeah. Where because because where a sigh would is gonna is happy to draw it out longer and longer. Well, Walcott's just like, all right, let me just say four things to this guy until he freaks out and then we can shoot him. I see, right. Because Tolliver wants to get his money back where Walcott would rather just Moe's manual is not a thing anymore that he has to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they're probably going to get the money back even after he's dead, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, (laughs) just... uh, I, 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 I think that they are... It's a, I like the Mose Manual thing just for the, the like how he does represent that the Hearst and the Walcott influence, which is just like how far will you go to betray your own principles or betray whatever you happen to believe in, even if Mose Manual doesn't seem to believe in much. But it's mm. a, um, a sense of being driven to that point by those two. Um, he also has the the great "Let me secure my toast" line, which is a <laughs> classic line at any buffet. Um, yeah. Outside of that, what's the other the other story we talked about? We can have talk a little bit about William. We can talk about. Um, I liked uh, E. B. trying to eloquently describe Isrenhaus and tell him to fuck off. <laughs> Are you initiating its mysteries, Mister Blaznikov's apparatus? <laughs> I always take the uh, talking about Blaznikov's apparatus. I, I don't know if it's just because the show is so uses cocksucker so much, but it always sounds like they're referencing his dick. For some reason, yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know, I don't know if that's intentional or if I'm just uh, reading into things. I'm, cu- you know, the thing that I'm most curious about, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm assuming that this is not the way that the third season ends, and I don't know if this is the way the movie ends. I don't think this is the way history ends, so they're probably not going to end it this way. But like, if this was any other show or movie or story, I feel like this story ends with Eb on on top of the mountain. Oh, E.B. You know, comes out like, on top. Yeah. 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 E.B. feels like the one who, who ends up shooting Omar, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's the uh, he's Mark Wahlberg in The End of the Departed. He's just like everyone else yeah, is just being basically. shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess he'd be the Donnie, not... Yeah, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, it would be Mark Wahlberg. Um, yeah, he, he seems like he's the one who ends up making the deal with Yankton or something. And so everybody else gets steamrolled out of there and he's put in as the, the, right. the, the actual mayor yes. and actually yeah. has the power, you know? Yeah. That does not happen. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually somebody shoots him in the back of the head. Yes. Yeah. Now, EB, um, EB's in this one. He still has his toothache, and which is a kind of a funny little bit of business that I don't. I'm not really sure why he has his toothache or what it's what it's doing for him. Besides, gives mm-hmm. him something to talk about. He's in this one briefly. He tries to befriend Blazanov. Um, That's like top five reasons why I'm glad that I don't live in the old west is tooth problems. Yeah. Not to mention you know, disease out. in general. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to. Yeah, you just have to do a Tom Hanks castaway and just smash it out of your mouth, I think, eventually. Maybe the Ugh. doc could pull it out with some kind of... I think they should... Amy always... Uh, Amy's a nurse, and she her thing in this, whenever they do something, she's like, why don't they just give them much more laudanum? You know, <laughs> so that they, they stop screaming about this stuff. Because you could... Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the, the danger of killing them, but you could probably... You could knock somebody out with that. It's, it's opium. You could just so take, take I- them right out. If I need the good stuff, go to Amy's hospital. Is what that's, you're telling yes, me. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, there's always there's always nurses stealing stuff. That's the universe that we live in. And the the med getting meds is so complicated. Such a complicated system in hospitals. Um, what else is there? There's the Alma reconcile. Uh, Ellsworth continues to try to propose to Alma. Alma keeps mm-hmm. delaying that. Alma and I have, Martha reconcile. If- if I was El Ellsworth, I wouldn't be really holding out hope because uh, when 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 a woman says, "I don't know, I want to talk about this right now," mm-hmm. also I need more time. <laughs> would you like me to tell you right now? Then you, I think you know what the answer is. Unfortunately, I think but. we've we've talked about this before. My uh, in the olden days, it just seemed more like there it, there was a more openness to both proposing and being told to wait a while for an answer. Mm, where yeah. you know, if I I only proposed to Amy because I knew it was a, it was like a hundred and ten percent shot. You know, it's like this is a this is a guaranteed <laughs> this is a guaranteed bucket, um, and it was. I couldn't imagine proposing if I was like I'm ninety percent sure she'll say yes. You know, yeah. that, hey that's man, a risk. I'm I'm fifteen years in and I'm still waiting for the net to open wide that's, enough. <laughs> that's that's a risk right there. Yeah, um, yeah. I you know to be fair though, it's it's. Uh, I think it's clear, like it. This is not a love proposal, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. So it is. It is a lot more like a business decision. Yes. You know, and it's it's a it's it's an it's it's an amalgamation, right? Yes, it is. And so she's she's. It's not something that she. I I really like this stuff because it is. There are so many moving parts to it that are legitimate issues, and make the the yes and no of it very fascinating because she is pregnant with Seth's child which is the impetus for the proposal to begin with obviously yeah but obviously also there is um <clears throat> monetary factors at stake yeah the capital there yeah and there's there's her own what's what's the word uh independence as a woman i think is yeah her own independence i'm sure there's some uh lovelorn aspect there too where if she gets married to Ellsworth that's really closing the door yep even though the door seems to be closed you know so there's there's a lot of really interesting things at play there in that in that uh, proposal and then Ms. Bullock said as it's yours you might want to see the safe installed did she yes ma'am having brought the midday meal as the safe arrived with the money inside 
And what did Mr. Bullock say to Mrs. Bullock? He said that might be a good idea. With enthusiasm equaling yours as you described the moment. I'd say on Mr. Bullock's part, about equal enthusiasm, Miss Garrett, yes. Despite which Mrs. Bullock persisted. Yes. Well, perhaps I oughtn't to disappoint her. Earlier, when I asked what else we might have to discuss, I referred to my proposal. I took that to be your meaning at the time. Chose not to respond. Not to, yes, as I hadn't yet made up my mind. Have you now? No, have I now. I, I think a lot of it, too, is just being driven by the fact that, like, early on when she's considering this thing, or when Ellsworth brings it up to her again, um, she's still hostile to the Bullocks at that point, you know? And I think mm. that the scene later on where she's invited to attend the safe opening and invited to lunch and there seems to be more of a um, a reconciliation between everybody. Martha is clearly trying to like smooth things over between everybody. She serves as a... Uh, she serves as that kind of a function in this episode between a lot of different parties, just kind of like trying to trying to calm the waters a little bit and like make sure that everything advances in the way that she wants. So she wants the she wants the bank to be there. She wants the school to start up. She wants the uh, William to have like a family unit around her. So it's a lot of her indirectly influencing influencing these things to happen. And I think that Alma, the point she's at early is changed drastically through this, as you're saying, an amalgamation changes her later and the, the, the now the relationship between the Bullocks and Alma to me at the end of the episode feels like it's, it has to be in a different place because they haven't even really talked about William's uh, injury yet at this point so mm, yeah um, so it's there I, but I, I think that the, the groundwork is being laid for there to be a change of opinion about these things I also find the the school thing to be <laughs> strange because again I'm not totally sure why she was so mad about it the last episode and then this episode she's less mad about it but it's still kind of weird yep she's teaching with teaching how to count with sausages which i mean you know usually you got i suppose but <laughs> easy to cut yeah I, I take it as um i think it was more it was about like uh martha seeming to alma in the last episode that martha was coming in to take things from alma in the way that she sure, took Seth, yeah. and she was going to take sophia and teach her and you know, there's the whole concern about like teachers become a sort of like surrogate parent for kids in a way. And there's like, yeah. you, you pass off a lot of um, responsibility to them. And this one, it just turns back and Alma recognizes that it was kind of a silly concern to have in the first place. Alma's basically, you know, based on the title of the last episode, Alma is now getting over her childish things in, in relation sure, to yeah. what that, what her responsibilities to the camp are and her relationship with Bullock. Yeah. Oh, um, did my ears deceive me <clears throat> or uh, did Joni refer to the weather as being nippy on the twat? Yeah, it's it's nippy okay. on the twat. Yep. And Jane Just says, see ya. Yeah, when she's trying to uh, convince Jane to come in, she's <laughs> Jane's refusing to come in. And apparently it was a brisk morning out there and she's not wearing her her underwear at that point. Uh, Jane and Joni is another amalgamation, I suppose. Jane has moved in with Joni now, and she and Charlie uh, got his his ultimate wishes uh, fulfilled, which is that the two of them seem like they are able to prop each other up, and they're gonna 
they're going to become roommates and spin off their own sitcom series, I assume, after this. I'd watch that over. show. You know, Janie and Joni, uh, Two's Company. Uh, any thoughts about that stuff? Like, I, I, I guess that that plot line's a good, a good indicator of my thoughts on the episode overall, which is that I, 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 I like the Joni and Jane story. Like, it makes sense to me, but I don't find it particularly engrossing as a storyline to spend a lot of time with. Um, I don't know what the fault of that is, whether it's like, it's another thing of like, there's not a tremendous amount of sort of action that can go along with it. It's really just those two learning to support each other and be there for each other as females in a, in this sort of male dominated world. But outside of that, I, um, I don't know. They're, they're just not scenes that I like to spend a lot of time with, really, in, in terms of yeah. some of the other characters I'd rather be with. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of it yet. It's pretty early. Um, you know, I... <coughs> excuse me. I, I, I know we've kind of talked about this before, but it is it's so interesting the way that they do these things in the show where it does feel like they're kind of just bonking some characters together and eventually they'll do something with them. Yeah. But it's not clear to the viewer or probably the writers at that point what is going to happen with them. Yeah. And so you get these sort of more um, reserved domestic type scenes that are great because, I mean, the actors are, are awesome. But it's ultimately it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel immediately like it's driving towards something, you know. Which is not which is not bad, but it's just it's it's an interesting on the show because there's I mean even the Isrenhaus and stuff right like that doesn't feel to me like a carefully plotted out story right that they've been nurturing over the course of the season it's it's like uh, it, it like it wouldn't surprise me if she's gone the next episode you right. know yep yeah no I can I can see that it's they do and I think I give the show credit for. You know, it kind of understands that some of the character pairings are just a little bit too strong to spend a lot of time with. Like seeing, if you had a Charlie and Jane scene in every episode, it would become unbearable because their interactions are so high energy between the two oh, of them. Oh, definitely. And definitely, yeah. I, I think the show recognizes that, and that's why it kind of has to get rid of Jane from Charlie's world, and she'll bump him into the thing. But they do a good job of lining up in what, like why this would make sense for the characters and to also not over to stay there welcome and be like, let's have a season where Jane and Charlie try to work together, you know, <laughs> and like see how that goes. Right. They, they move on from things pretty quickly, which I think is to the benefit of the show. Yeah. That's yeah, like you're feeling like free jazz at some points where you're sort of does. unsure as to yeah. where things are going. Like I never thought I, it, it surprised me a little bit that I, that fields came back and what's the other, what's the name of the guy? The Hostetler. other guy, Hostetler. Like it, it surprised me, but it didn't, because that those guys are both very uh, representative of that kind of freestyle of the show, where it's like, okay, well, we need this thing to happen. Who's out there that we could use? Uh, oh, these guys are still there. Let's throw them in there. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they Hosteller runs the uh, the horse or whatever livery. I guess maybe it's not just horses, but animals that he does there. But yeah, it's a uh, yeah. Um, they needed, I guess that there was, there was some, uh, the behind the scenes stuff for this episode is kind of funny, uh, where, um, 
the the so it, it's kind of it shows to me this weird uh, schism between like what's going on and what the episode turns out to be. So mm-hmm. the apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it was just kind of funny. Like it, the the episode is very serious, and it's about William Bullock uh, getting hit by this horse, right, and being sort of like uh, Steve says that he broke his back is the final line of the episode. Um, and there's this drama to it, and it's obviously it's like devastating to the community and things like that. But the impetus of it was apparently David Milch hated this kid's mother. Who was who was who was required? He's such a prick. Who was required to be there because the kid is underage? So like he has to have like a parental yeah. guardian on set. But his mother was apparently just one of these people in the Deadwood Bible who's like always sort of like piping in with ideas about things and like sort of asking them to do things. And apparently they're saying that the the last straw was that she handed a script to Milch and asked if he would read it and said that this like oh, this like like eight year old kid had written the script. And so but she also I guess the the censure to it was Milch agreed to read the script. But she had these like stipulations about like she, he would sign contracts saying that he wouldn't take any of the ideas from it and stuff like that. So <laughs> right. he told her just to fuck off and then he killed he killed off the kid. Um, and his other sort of stroke of genius that makes it funny was that he'd been constantly through the uh, series we talked about this earlier. He had no idea what the opening credits are supposed to be about. He's like, what is this horse doing? Why is this horse in the opening credits? What is it doing running around? And when they came up with William, the idea of William Bullock gets run over by the horse, he was apparently just giddy with the idea that it would be the same horse from the credits. <laughs> and so he, he wanted to make sure that they could get the same horse, that, that that would be give a reason for the horse to be in the credits and stuff like that. But it just struck me as like sort of like funny and they weren't taking things particularly serious in the background of what ends as kind of like a, you know, one, one of the most dramatic, quote unquote, dramatic endings of an episode that we've had in a while. Yeah, that's really funny, but also sounds like a nightmare to work for, <laughs> atmosphere-wise. It's like yeah, this has—it's this fucking horse that kills this kid. This is this mm-hmm. is what's going to happen. Yeah, but that's the uh, the reason. I mean, you could William to the point of this episode has not been a vital character on the show. You know, he's kind of like a, right. He's just a kid who's who's there. Um, so you can kind of see that. I almost see the the reticence of if Milch didn't like this mother, you almost see why the kid is not getting a lot to do in the show. Um, I also don't think the kid is that great of an actor on the show. Unfortunately, he's it's it's. I don't know if any kids can do great in this. Sophia gets away with it because she doesn't have to speak because she doesn't know English. Yeah. So yeah. it's tough for kids to deliver this dialogue and have it come off convincingly. I think. I also. I would be shocked if Milch could write dialogue for a child. Yeah. Well, I mean, he'd have to keep it flowery like yeah. this, right? And it's just, it's not, it's not going to work for the kids. That's between us. Tell no one I give you that. That's not. But thank you. Keep it a secret and you won't get into any trouble. And if you're told I helped you on the bike, that's between you and your father. Because um, who's the, back this, then? Everybody was calling. Everyone said cocksucker. <laughs> even like the ten-year-olds, right? Because the second youngest would be Kristen Bell. I think would be like the other youngest character right. that's ever been on the show, and she's a she's a grown woman at that point. So. I can only I can only take this so long before she she starts calling people a cocksucker. So we need to kill her real fast. <laughs> 
Yeah, they grow up so fast. But yeah, any thoughts about the... I, we can get specifically into the ending. Um, I like the editing. They're, they're doing... One of the reviews I was reading was just saying that this is kind of like a Godfather type technique, which I wouldn't have made the connection because I'm not a huge Godfather fan. But this um, this sort of intercutting between the scenes mm-hmm. that's building up, I suppose it makes sense. I think it's uh, it's most famously done with like when Michael becomes the... Uh, the lead of the family. There's like yep. his, his wet, it's whatever his wedding or whatever is like everyone is getting killed around him. Yeah. You know, it's uh, the, uh, baptism of his, yes. um, nephew. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. As, as his enemies are removed and he steps into prominence, it's, it's that kind of thing where the, the scenes are being cut around what's going on. And there's this building sense of dread. Um, I, I like the, I think Deadwood, I don't talk about music much because I don't pay tremendous amounts of attention to it, but I think Deadwood actually does, uh, it's, music pretty well like that sort of unsettling stuff it it works in as well as the um uh, scenes where like charlie is talking to bill's grave i like the music that's played behind those scenes but uh it built it all builds here towards william being injured obviously yeah and it's um it's a bit of an inverse of i don't know if inverse is the right word but it, it reminded me this is not the first time i've done this because there's uh, there's been another scene, I want to say maybe in the season finale, or maybe it was maybe maybe it was when Bill gets shot. I can't remember that they did the same kind of thing, <clears throat> where it's a lot of the, that mu- that under um, the uh, foreboding music with the cross cutting and then a big like crescendo moment. It, they've yep. done it before. They did it la- honestly. They did it last episode. Yes. With the bike, um, with the bike, and yeah. the and the 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 brother killing the other brother, so it's it's not it's not a new technique for the show, but uh, it's it doesn't make it any less effective because it's you know it, there's a reason they keep doing it, it still works. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, any larger thoughts about William before we get out of here for this episode? Um, uh, we hardly knew ye. Yeah. Well, he's. I'm. I am curious. So I'm assuming he's dead. He's not dead. Oh, okay. So is, is he, he sticks around for a bit, despite despite his mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to say I'm I'm curious to see what how that affects the the Martha and Seth relationship if if the child is not there at all. Yeah, you know? this will be more this is more clear when you are reminded that this is part one of a two-parter basically. Sure. So, it, 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 William's fate will make more sense I think when we watch the next episode and all those questions will be um answered. Um Yeah, I I mean some I It's ca- weird cuz it's not the broken back that kills him, it's actually the high cholesterol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the diabetes. He has adult onset diabetes. <laughs> yeah, because of the fucking coffee he drinks. <laughs> he would have. He would have survived, except his uh, metabolics are just off the charts. Doc Cochran is doing blood draws and looking at things in a uh, a microscope. <laughs> you can't keep giving this kid fucking cookies, Seth. Haven't you read Peter Atia's Outlive book, Seth? You gotta fast eight days a week. It doesn't work. Do you have any idea how much <laughs> I stress over the triglycerides in this boy's system? It's the fucking bad cholesterol. <laughs> it's too fucking Don't high. make me cut him open. 
We'll see. We'll see what the doc can do. Yeah, it's um. I think you know the final point about it is just the, the symbolism of of it is that it's fitting. You know, for whatever Milch wanted to do in terms of why he wanted to get rid of William Bullock, they did manage to move it into a space where the death of a child is this community of outlaws and con men and murderers and thieves at the start of season one, when everyone was coming out there to stake their claim in gold has moved towards something else now, which is that a child is sort of hanging out with people who aren't his parents in town. And they're sharing these experiences about this upcoming modernity, modernity, sorry, with the bike and all this technology that's coming and the town is changing. There's a sense of uh, community that's being built there, that it's like it no longer is a camp where William needs to be under the protection of his parents in, in this kind of a place. He's out on I his mean, own. I wouldn't have let him go. <laughs> <laughs> Even for the bike ride to go to go tighten uh, some handlebars? If I was Seth, I'd be like, um, why don't you wait until I can go with you? <laughs> He's got stuff to do. He's got signatures to, to watch, to bear witness to. But William, I think it's just, you know, the town, he represents the death of a, a quote unquote innocence that attracts the intention of everyone in the town. Like everyone is kind of yeah. psychically aware when the accident happens, even if they're nowhere near being able to see it, they all have a sense that something has gone wrong. And symbolically, it just represents where the town is at this point. And the, you know, as Hearst and Walcott continue to spread their tendrils into things and it's caused people like Mose Manuel to sort of give up on those ideas. The rest of the town is uniting around what it actually means to be a community and how those feelings are developing for each other and what it means to support each other and stuff like that. So it works as a symbolic ending for me. Yeah. Anything else? Are we done? Mm, I think that's it. Thanks everybody for listening to our coverage of Amalgamation and Capital today on the Something Pretty Podcast. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file. All the money there goes to support this and the other shows that we do, including Star Trek, the horror picture show, there's the badass show with Sean and Clay, uh, talking about Batman the Animated Series. All that stuff can be found on the website, thepenskefile.com, or the YouTube channel. We have a Discord, blah, 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 all that stuff. Check it all out. Join the conversation. Anything you want to say, Clay, before we head out of here? Uh, yes, yeah, Sean and I have um, a Patreon episode up where we talk about the 2023 DC Comics film, The Flash. <clears throat> so if you want to check that out, head over to the Patreon. And uh, I've got a comic book on the shelves right now that I co-wrote with Sean and Katana Ca- Collins called Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker. So first two issues are out right now, and uh, there's six issues, so there's plenty of story left to go. There we go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Something Pretty podcast. You can leave your thoughts wherever you can. I'll try to read them. Thanks, everybody, for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you're enjoying this. We'll be back with the unofficial part two of this two-parter. The next one is called Advances None Miraculous. So we will see you in a week. Bye. You're fucking cheating me. Look out from under there. I ain't cheating you, sir. Well, you have another dealer. Mr. Manuel. Another fucking cheat! Hot and cold's the way the cards run, sir. Time immemorial. I want it back. Give it back to me. Give him his last wager, Leon. We'll call that one no bet. Yes, sir, Mr. Tolman. All of it. Everything. 
I can't do that, Mr. Manuel, as I believe you know. And those rifles are aimed at your head. Everything! Including youth, Mr. Manuel? And why not beauty? Not credibly restored, perhaps, but as a new, non-negotiable term. Would you not have two, your brother Charlie resurrected? Would you stipulate your envy of him be purged? Surely you'll insist that Charlie retain certain defects. His ineffable self-deceptions, for example, which were your joy in life to rebuke. And purpose, so far as you had one. I suppose you would see removed those qualities which caused you to love him. And the obliviousness to danger which allowed you to shed his blood. <laughs>